Ignatius is someone who is very dear to my heart. I <coughs> first um, met his spiritual exercises when I was 14 and was fascinated by them and eventually um, followed a way of discovering more about them and that led me eventually to enter the Sisters of the Senecal whose work, um, one of our works, is retreat work and training others. I'd maybe like to invite you first of all to just look at the timeline which I think you've just received. I always feel it's important to kind of fit somebody into their history. Ignatius was born in 1491, possibly in May, but we're not sure. So he's a contemporary of Henry VIII. We were looking, you were looking particularly um, earlier in, the, no, yes, earlier in the term, no, or was it last term, I can't remember now, earlier in the term, I think, uh, people like Walter Hilton. Yes. He too um, was around when Ignatius was around. So was Erasmus and Martin Luther. Maybe other names that you're familiar with as you look down that list. Um, things like Canterbury Cathedral finished being built in 1503. Uh, St. Teresa of Jesus, or Teresa of Avila, was born 1515. Thomas More wrote his famous Utopia in 1516, and so on. So just to give us an idea, and then Henry VIII um, dying just nine years before Ignatius did, so they were very much contemporaries. That's just there as a, as a kind of a guideline, as something you might find helpful fitting him into his history and our history too. But what of the man Ignatius? I suppose there are really kind of two camps of people when you ask people about Ignatius. There are those who say, oh yes, he was a soldier. He liked everything cut and dried and gave strict rules and regulations about things. Can't stand him at all. He didn't leave any space for, for the spirit or freedom or... Um, the movement of the individual, you know, you look at his text of the exercises, everything looks so regimented, not my scene at all. Very different, isn't he, from what we know of St Francis, who was very open and liberal. But that's not really, well, and then there's the other side of people who say that, well, Ignatius was a dreamer. He wrote again, perhaps following on from the fact that he limited people's freedom. He wrote rules like um, a letter on blind obedience to his companions, telling them that they had to be like a dead stick in the superior's hand. And I suppose in a way that really doesn't appeal very much to us today. But I think we do him a disservice because he didn't mean by that 
that one blindly just went along and did what others told you, or that you were just there to be used or not used as others felt fit. Really, he was encouraging people to choose to be obedient, to choose to do what they were asked, at the, the expense of putting aside their own will, their own desire, and so doing what they saw as what God wanted them to do, expressed through others. But that's very different to just reading something about blind obedience. But really, as you come to read the life of Ignatius and know him, he was very much the passionate Spaniard who really fell in love with God <clears throat> as his life unfolded. As I said earlier, he was born in 1491 in the village of Leola in the Basque region, northern region of Spain into a very large family. And his early family life had quite an influence on him because at a very early age, his mother died and he was looked after, first of all, by one of the nurses in the village who was called Maria and then his sister-in-law later on, <clears throat> who was also called Maria. And this influenced him greatly in his devotion and love of Mary, the mother of Jesus. As we see in a few moments, he very much chose Mary as the lady in his life. But he very led a very ordinary childhood, growing up in Laola with his brothers and sisters, sometimes living with one of his uncles as he was training for the army and a military career, although there is also some thought that there were leanings towards a clerical life as well, but we don't hear very much about that. But it was as a soldier that his conversion took place. In 1521, the Spanish were fighting the French in the village of Pamploma, perhaps noted for us today because it's one of the areas where the bulls are let loose to run around the streets on certain days um, of the year. But that's not what was happening in Ignatius' time. He was there fighting the French. And it looked pretty much as though they were going to get beaten quite badly. But in his very persistent way, he said, no, let's go on. Don't let's give in, let's continue to fight. And so the, the captain or the leader of their side of the army said, well, okay, we will. And that's when it all happened. Ignatius was shot with two cannonballs that damaged very badly both of his legs. As a result, he was taken back home. And although the, the legs were set on the battlefield, when they got home, he realised they weren't set properly. And he was quite a proud and vain guy, so he insisted that these legs be broken and reset. And as a result of that, he nearly died. Because remember, there was no things like anaesthetics and painkillers and all that kind of thing in those days. He just had to grit his teeth and hold on while they pulled and pushed and whatever they did. 
But eventually um, the leg was set and it was much better than it had been. Part of the reason we're told why he wanted it um, reset was there was a bone protruding and it would have prevented him from wearing his fancy boots. Um, so, and he didn't want that, so he insisted that his leg be set and be straightened. While he was convalescing, as anyone does when they're convalescing, he was looking for books to read. And they didn't have many books in the house in Laola. They had one novel, which he devoured, The Lives of the Saints and the Bible. So after reading the novel, well, he had to make do with the lives of the saints and the Bible. And he passed the time away while reading the Bible of copying it out, particularly the New Testament, and copying out the words that Jesus said in red, what Mary said in blue. And then he moved on to look at the lives of the saints. And he was struck very particularly by three people two of whom we know very well. One was Francis, one was Dominic, and the other one was a local hermit called Humphrey that we don't know much about. But Ignatius read what they did and said, well, hmm, if Francis can do that and Dominic can do that, I'm going to do that too. No, I'm going to do more than they do. And this was something that really became kind of a catchword for Ignatius. He was never content to do just enough. I guess he took that step, that um, part of the scriptures very literally, where Jesus says, you know, if somebody comes and wants your coat, give him your cloak as well. Go that extra mile, give that much, that bit more. And that's what Ignatius did himself and encourages people in his spiritual exercises, which we'll talk about later, to do as well. So the more, doing more, was something very important. But at this time too, as well as having wonderful dreams about what he could do for God, he also had other kinds of dreams that were sparked off by the novel that he'd read. <clears throat> there was a lady at court, we don't know who she was, that he was very um, drawn to, really had his eye on her, and so used to daydream about how it would be if he was married to her. As I say, we don't know who she was. We don't even know if there was any kind of relationship between them at all, but we just know that Ignatius was daydreaming about what could be, what might be. And here, in a sense, began a very important part of his life and of his teaching. Because here, he began to be aware of these daydreams, not just what they, where they were leading him, what he might do, but a bit like you and I when we daydream. You know, it's wonderful when we daydream. We get carried off to maybe far distant lands. You know, if we daydream, if we won the lottery, what we might do if we won a few million. And then we have to come back to the reality and think, well, that was a lovely daydream. But, you know, the reality is I've got to get up and go to work tomorrow. Uh, I can't go and, you know, buy a house in Spain or the Bahamas or whatever we'd like to be. And Ignatius began to notice, too, that with these daydreams, they were great while he was thinking about them. 
But once he stopped thinking about them, his feelings, what was going on inside him, was very different. When he daydreamed about the lady that he might marry, afterwards he felt very uncomfortable, dissatisfied, kind of incomplete. Whereas when he daydreamed about what he might do for God, he felt very relaxed, at peace, at home. In a way, it felt very right, whereas the others didn't. Now, he didn't make too much of it at this point, but later on, he began to realise those are the movements that happen within us that we don't really control, but can really help us on our journey to God. To get a bit technical, he talks about the words spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation. And I'll talk about those a bit later on when we come to look at the whole aspect of discernment. But they're very important movements that go, in, go on in our hearts, in our spirits. So of Ignatius and his recovery, as he began to get better and think about what he might do, he was very set on going to live in the Holy Land. That's where he would be, as close as he could be to where Jesus had been. So he'd go and live in the Holy Land. Maybe help people that come, um, talk to people about God, maybe help them in some way, share something of his journey. Eventually he got to the Holy Land, but he was in for a big shock because that wasn't where God wanted him to be. And in fact, the Franciscans turned him out and said, well, you know, we don't want folk like you here. Um, go back where you came from. And after a lot of trying to persuade them, he went back home to Loyola. Then he decided, well, maybe God was calling him to be a beggar and live um, a very frugal life and perhaps be um, a bit of a mendicant, um, wandering preacher, a bit like Francis was. So he decided to try that. But the way he did that, you know, he never went about things by halves. He was going along the road and he met a beggar. So he accosted the poor beggar and insisted that they changed clothes and he'd go off and live as a beggar. But the poor beggar went into town and got arrested and had to then, when Ignatius heard what had happened, he had to go back and explain, you know, that wasn't quite what it was. And so he began to think, well, maybe that isn't what God wanted of him either. And then he began to re remember and perhaps connect in again with his love for Our Lady. And it was the custom that a knight would go and spend time in prayer, maybe in a local monastery, before he was married. So Ignatius decided to take himself off and go to the Benedictines at Montserrat. And he stayed there for quite a long time, reviewing his life and trying to find the way God was inviting him into doing what God doing God's will. And while he was there, he fasted a lot and did other kinds of penances. But 
Then eventually, um, after a long time in prayer, and really reflecting on his life, in fact, what he experienced there, he later wrote down as his spiritual exercises. But he began to realise that God was actually asking him to become a priest, to become ordained. And so at somewhere in his 30s, he took himself off back to school to learn Latin. I guess he probably hadn't paid much attention to Latin at school, so he had to learn it. And then he went off to university in Paris. And while he was there, gathered a few men around him. And so began the Companions of Jesus. During that time, he helped other people in prayer, gave them the religious exercises that he experienced himself or something very similar, and was helping people with their prayer. But of course, the authorities in Rome got to hear about this. And who was this layman that was helping people to pray? So he got called before the Inquisition. But they couldn't find anything wrong with what he was doing. So they sent him off with a caution. And that happened a few times to him. But each time they couldn't find anything that was wrong with what he was doing. Because you see, he was still a layman when he started giving retreats, giving what we would now call spiritual direction, but that's not what he called it. So he was helping other people on their spiritual journey. And eventually he went with his companions to Rome. There they made a vow to be obedient to the Pope. And today still, some of the Jesuits actually still make that fourth vow of obedience to the Pope, to go wherever the church needs them, wherever they can best serve God and the church, other people. So that's a rough outline of his life. I guess the important, two important fruits really from his life other spiritual exercises and the Society of Jesus as we know them today. The spiritual exercises is a retreat. Um, this is the book, not quite um, how you would, um, I put a different cover on it because it was a paperback. But it looks a very boring book when you pick it up because all the paragraphs are numbered. There's lots of different headings and numbers and um, different titles. It's not a book to pick up and say, well, I'll go make a retreat with this. I would totally discourage you from doing that. Because what this book is really, it's a handbook for the person giving the retreat. It's really, in a sense, a bit like the notebook of Ignatius. You know, often in retreats, after our own meditation, quiet times, many of us keep a spiritual journal or a spiritual notebook. In a way, this is something of the bones of that for Ignatius. But it wasn't written while he was experiencing the prayer. It was actually written towards the end of his life, when some of his companions really kept 
on at him to write them, write down his experiences so that they could use them. They were already using them under his guidance, but they felt they were such a powerful tool, they wanted the details. So he wrote them down. And um, there are today many different versions um, of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, um, all derived from his original Spanish. And the book really is in three sections. The first section, there's a whole series of notes for the person who gives the retreat. What they should do, what they should be looking for. Um, and I guess I was struck by something that Kim read, or a quotation Kim read at the beginning um, from um, the Father of the Desert. How about of the firm foundation? And Ignatius starts this off with his principle and foundation, the basis on which he wanted to live his life. And in many ways, there were lots of echoes, both through the reading or the prayer of um, Etty and also um, from the Desert Fathers. Ignatius was very conscious of creation. And so for him, his basic principle in life, the foundation of his life, was to praise, reverence and serve God our Lord and use all the things, all the creation that God had given to him to help him to save his soul. And in that, not wanting one thing or another, not wanting poverty or riches, a long life or a short life, but to be to so totally free that he only wanted what God wanted. Not an easy thing to be, but that was the place where he wanted to be. And then he moves on through the text to give us the outline of the retreat. And then at the end, there are some rules for various things like giving alms, thinking with the church, um, rules about eating, and then some scripture references that help to fill out the, um, the retreat itself. Those rules, I'm not, not really going to look at them, um, they're very much kind of in keeping with Ignatius' time um, and very much in the language of his time. But I what I would like to invite you to do is to look at um, the On the Journey um, handout that you have. Because this really takes us through the spiritual exercises in a very simple kind of way. Because for Ignatius, the exercises, well, not just for him, but for all of us, follow the, the scriptures. So he begins um, over on the tree on the right, um, you see the word foundation and a starting point with the words goodness and wholeness. He starts with the realisation of creation. God gave us the whole of creation to help us in our journey of faith, of life. 
and it's a good starting point. In that too, he comes to help, he recognises for himself and he helps us to recognise an extremely basic fact that really we can't go on without, that God loves us. Very basic. And that I am lovable. So not only does God love me, but I need to love me too. Because as um, some of you may have remembered, um, Damien Lundy, who was um, a great um, hymn writer um, in the, the 1980s, he used to say, you know, if we read the first chapter of Genesis, it tells us after each of the works of creation, and God saw that it was good. So God didn't make junk. You know, so who are we to say, I'm no good? You know, poor little me. We are good because we are created in the image and likeness of God. We are being created in the image and likeness of God. And that's what Ignatius invites us really to ponder at the beginning of this retreat. This retreat that he embraced and invites others to do is a pattern for 30 days. Quite a long time. But he realised, even in those days, that not everybody could afford to go and make a 30 days retreat. Maybe they couldn't get the time, nor could they afford it. So he made suggestions of adaptations. And the adaptations in the first part, early on after his death, the early Jesuits thought in order to adapt them, you had to take all the important points out of these 30 days. So you compress the 30 day into four, six or eight days. But thank goodness, the wisdom of looking back at the work of Ignatius and in the late 60s, as they really, the Jesuits really studied again the spiritual exercises, they began to realise that was not what Ignatius meant. What he meant was that if we adapt them, we take the person where they are and enable them to listen to the spirit, to move them on to whichever part. They don't have to go all the way around this circle, like a, a racing track. They can just take a little baby step and they're following the pattern. Or they can take a giant stride and they're still following the pattern. Because a very important clue that Ignatius gives us the rules of the beginning and very important for those of us who are spiritual directors, a real job in life, I guess for any of us who are walking with others, is to allow God to be with the, the other person, the creature, I don't come in with my big feet, step in the way and say, this is what God wants you to do. Or this is how you should be doing that. We can offer ways very gently, but we don't push them in a direction. We allow God to do the pushing or the pulling. We just make little nudges maybe if that's needed. But we're there in that stance of freedom and allowing the person to move on. In the exercises, as you see here, there are four stages. So we move towards the left. 
uh, first stage, then second stage at the top left, the very top, third and fourth stage. Call stages here for simplicity. Ignatius calls them weeks, but they're a bit like the seven days of creation. You know, they don't really mean 24 hours. So a week in Ignatian terms doesn't mean seven days. It means a length of time that we devote to one aspect of the exercises. And what he asks us to do in each of these is to really have an aim or a desire. So we don't just come into this kind of a retreat with an open book, open-ended, and I don't know what I want. We really come, as most of us would go into a time of quiet and reflection, time of prayer, knowing maybe what we want. It may be just to be with God, to just enjoy the peace and the quiet. Very often when we go in for a longer time of quiet in a retreat, maybe we just want to be with Jesus, get to know him better, just learn more about God. And so Ignatius says it's important we have a desire. Because as we know that we have a desire, so we will know how we're moving on and the person who's walking with us will know whether we're moving in the right direction or not. So as we move on, as we move from the foundation, we move into the first stage. And the words above that talk about sinner or sinners, but loved and healed in Christ. And it's a very logical step when you come to think about it. As we've reflected on God's love for us, that wonderful gift of God's love, loving me just as I am, knowing me with all my faults and failings, yet God still loves me. Though everybody else gives up on me, God hasn't. And so Ignatius logically moves the individual on, or we move on quite logically, to look at how we failed to respond to that love. But knowing that we're still upheld in those loving hands. So we're not out on our own, cast out into darkness. But we're recognising we've turned away from that love. Maybe we've rejected it. Perhaps we've even gone so far as we could say we've committed adultery against it. But God's loving hand is always held out to us, waiting for us like the prodigal father for us to return. And as we return, as we recognise that love the father is offering to us, that Jesus is offering to us, so we recognise that Jesus is inviting us to, to move on and be with him. Jesus invites us to serve with him. And so as we move along the path, we come to the bottom left-hand corner, the, the call of Jesus, a call to serve or the kingdom. 
a call of Christ our King. And here, Ignatius invites us to look back again at that point of freedom that we looked at at the beginning. Am I still free and wanting to respond to this call? It's not a case of looking in detail. Will I do this or will I do that? Is this what God wants? Is that what God wants? It's really standing again in that place of, yes, I'm ready. I'm willing to do what you want. Don't know what it is, but I know you will be with me. I'm not going off on my own. You are there by my side. I'm reminded of that um, lovely quote. I think it's from Camus. Um, Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. And that's what we're asking of Jesus. Can we just be beside you? I'm ready for whatever. And so we begin, Ignatius invites us then to look at whatever in the second stage or companionship. So we move very quickly into the New Testament and look at the life of Jesus. He sets out this um, stage with a very powerful meditation of the Blessed Trinity, looking down on the world at their creation and almost saying to each other, what have we done wrong? Look at the mess they're in. What did we do that, what didn't we do that we should have done? And then there's the son saying, well, I'll go and show them what we're about and what they should be doing. And so it moves into the incarnation. It's about the only time in the exercises that Ignatius actually talks specifically about the Trinity. But the Trinity are there all the way through because he's talking, we're often praying to God or we're praying with Jesus and obviously the Spirit is there with us, praying in us and for us as we journey through. But sometimes the Spirit is not mentioned and so people think, Oh, Ignatius isn't Trinitarian at all. But as we will look at a bit later on this evening, he was very Trinitarian. And that's the place where it comes in, in the exercises. Then he moves on to the third stage, which would be a very logical following on. We look at the life of Jesus. We know his yes to his father cost him his suffering, his death. And so he says... Are we ready to go that far? Are we ready to say our yes, whatever the cost? May not be the same as Jesus, but are we ready to go there? And usually we are because we've gone through the previous stages of the retreat and our great desire is to do what God is wanting of us. But he doesn't leave us in the passion. He invites us to look at it, to be aware of, again, Jesus suffering out of love for me. That's how much he loved me, or loves me, I should say. He then takes us into the fourth stage, which is sharing in the joy of the resurrection. 
that I too share in as I journey through life. Not always the bouncy, bubbly, alleluia joy, but a deep inner joy, the conviction that I know my God is risen and is alive in Jesus. And then he has a beautiful conclusion, which just here is called the path of love, that really kind of sends us out into the rest of life in a very different place to where we came in. Because if we've experienced 30 or eight or six days in intense prayer, things have happened within us. We have met our God at a very deep level. We have become contemplative. But we can't stay there. You know, life has to go on. So does work, so do all the other things. And so we have to go back just as the disciples couldn't stay on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were sent back into Jerusalem. So we have to go back to wherever our Jerusalem is to continue living. But with that contemplative stance within us, knowing that God is within our being and we can connect very easily with our God, we have been transformed and we go out to share that gift with our world. To take God into the rest of our lives and lives of others too. Now for Ignatius, the 30 days retreat was a very important and precious time. And so he only believed in people making it once in their lifetime. Today we hear of people making it a few times. A lot of religious communities, the Jesuits included, make it at least twice. But for Ignatius, it was such a powerful, because of his own experience, it was so powerful. It so turned his life round that from being somebody who took religion and his faith very, very lightly, became very, very committed, passionately in love with God, that it totally turned his life round. And he was so strict in that, that, that people only made it once. They had to be in the right frame of mind to make it. So poor old Francis Xavier had to wait three years before Ignatius thought he was ready to make it. So you see, he didn't take it lightly. Perhaps we'll just stop there for a few moments. Any questions? Because I'm sure some of you have not, maybe not experienced the 30 day, but maybe the retreat in daily life or Ignatian exercises or any questions you want to ask. What did you mean by being in the right frame of mind to, to start it? Did you have a particular, did he go on to explain that? Or? Being ready to be moved by God and doing it because you wanted to deepen your awareness of God. So not just that I wanted a month off or wanted to go and do something nice and easy, which it isn't. <laughs> and that's something religious houses that 
offer 30-day retreats are very particular about today. Yeah, you can't just, you know, ring the doorbell and say, I've come to make a 30-day retreat. <laughs> Thank you. How would you know if you were ready? Well, you would be somebody who is praying and trying to lead a, Christ, a good Christian life. And you would be wanting, as Ignatius was, to do more. Kind of a feeling of, there's more to life than this and I want to know what it is. And it's always helpful to have made a shorter retreat, like a six or an eight day, to have some experience of a longer time in silence before being submerged into the 30 day, because it is a silent retreat. And it's a long time to keep quiet. <laughs> Would it be appropriate to call that those intimations spiritual stirrings? Could be, yes. Mm. Yeah. Just about Ignatius himself, I, I got a bit confused earlier. Did he remain a layman? No, sorry, he eventually became ordained. Right, yes. Um, yeah. In Paris, he was ordained. Right. Okay. When he started giving the retreats, he was still a layman. Right. In fact, he had two encounters with the Inquisition, didn't he? He, he did. He yeah. into prison twice. Yes. Was that before he was ordained? Yes. Okay. It was because he was still a layman that they could hold him up. Because mm. he was doing what he shouldn't have been. Did Ignatius make any provision for the, um, you know, the retreat to life? Yes, it, he did. It, he, it, it came from him. It, it did, yes. In the front of the book, mm. um, there are what we call 20 notes. And number 19 of there says that if you don't have um, time to go away and make a retreat, you can actually do it in the flow of daily life. Mm. That's why you might sometimes hear it called the 19th annotation. It's number 19 of the notes at the beginning. <laughs> Simple as that. No mystical thing about it. So the re retreat in daily life is still a, a guided retreat in that you have a spiritual director. That's right, yes. What you would do is, in the 30-day retreat, you would probably be praying for five sessions each day, and you would meet with your director once a day. In the retreat in daily life, you would pray for one session and have a time of reflection each day, and meet with your director once a week, once every 10 days, depending on the availability of you both. And th the wonderful thing is they are both very powerful and neither of them are kind of in opposition to each other. They're just, the experience is different. You know, it's a very intense experience to make the 30-day, as you can imagine. In the retreat in daily life, life is going on as well and bringing influence to your prayer as your prayer is influencing your retreat, your life. Um, as it, it does anyway, but you become more conscious of it, in, I think, in the retreat in daily life. So you don't have to wait till you go home to kind of put this right. You can do it um, in the retreat in daily life as you're moving through it. You know, if you find there's 
relationship needs adjusting or whatever. Sorry, I think it's this. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And is that so that the advice is to do the retreat in daily life once or twice in one's life, or is that something that? Again, he felt it was such an important and transforming thing that you only needed to make it once. Yeah. What Sorry. are the different types of prayer that are recommended or used throughout the retreat? I notice on page, um, on the sections, we're about 15. I talk about 15. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. know that's quite a big subject, but uh, could you just give them a little Maybe just in... In the, the 30 day, um, he begins with the foundation and the first week with what he calls meditation. And for him, meditation is using our mind, so using our memory, our understanding, our will, in order, discursive meditation, in order to move into our feelings. Um, when he talks about the, um, the kingdom, He invites us to consider, so it's more kind of looking at it outside of ourselves, um, using our minds, using our hearts, um, but kind of just taking it very lightly really, which is different to when he moves into the week on the life of Jesus, or the weeks on the life of Jesus, when he invites us to use what he calls contemplation. And that, it's not quite what you use the word contemplation. It's actually inviting us to be present in the scene. So listen to what Mary and Joseph are saying. Watch what they're doing. Perhaps be part of it. And then talk to them. And that's another way of praying that he talks about. He calls it a colloquy. Which is really just having a chat Some of these words, I think, must be just translated from the Spanish, because it's certainly not a word we would normally use. Um, But it really simply means just chatting it over. Imagine yourself kind of sitting with Jesus or Mary or whoever beside you and talking about it. He then um, talks about the examine, which is a reflective kind of prayer, which I hope we might be able to do before the end of the evening. And I think you've got a sheet with um, an outline of one way of doing it. That's just reflecting on the day or a period of time. He also talks about confession and communion and those as ways of praying. And he also talks about praying over things like the commandments. And he, that's what he talks about as the first, first method of prayer. His second method of prayer, he invites us to use either a traditional prayer like the Our Father or maybe even a scripture passage and just stay with one word for as long as it's meaningful to us. He uses words like savour and relish, which really describe what he's trying to do. So we stay with one word, relish it till it has no more flavour or taste, if you like, and then move on to the next one. And the third way he talks of praying is using, um, saying the words in rhythm with our breathing. What we might use as a mantra, but he doesn't actually use that term because he says we can actually use um, the more formal traditional prayers or again a scripture passage. 
I know that's not all 15 of them, but it's a good few of them. Does that help? Uh, yes. So are most of them discursive meditation? Does he talk about going to quiet or complete silence? The more sort of prayer and quiet? He doesn't specifically, but he expects that to happen. Yeah. Within all of the weeks or towards the end or at any time from the discursive? Very much depend on the individual, but really it's much more from the second week on. So when you're into the life of Jesus, you would probably do that. But he doesn't talk a lot about that in... Not in the text. In, as a companion with the text, he wrote a directory, and in that he actually talks about that. And that's something, again, of what he means of allowing the creator to be with the creature. So allowing the individual to follow their way of praying. Because what he wants to do is not impose these ways of praying, but rather allow the individual to pray whatever they're happy with. But these are there as guidelines if people say, well, how do I do it? It's a directory of the spiritual exercises. It's not ready very easily available. Now, having said that, I'm not sure whether... Um, do you know, Kim, does um, Philip Endine have it in his Penguin book? don't think he does, does he? No. It's something that usually you can only get through the Jesuits. <laughs> but if you're working in a Jesuit retreat house... <laughs> Thank okay. you very much. So, can I just add something going on for, from this discussion? Because um, whenever I've heard people talking about uh, Ignatian ways of prayer, they tend to, it's very helpful to hear the different routines and the different, because um, people tend to emphasise the imaginative kind of you know, being part of the scene mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that, this is quite a personal question, really. I, um, I, I don't find that very easy to do that. I'm sort of more drawn to the really sitting in silence kind of prayer. And so I've, I've always, I've, I've kind of felt in the, you know, would it be, uh, what would your advice be for someone who might say that about themselves? Would it, is it, is it good for someone or could it potentially be good for someone to do the Ignatian retreat? Or would you say that for sometimes for people actually, their way of prayer is something different, so maybe it's not for them? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? From what you're I saying do. now, mm -hmm. it sounds like actually everyone could, could gain from it. But yes. when I've sort of come across it, it's slightly, I suddenly thought, well, it, it might just be, I might just find it really difficult to do, and perhaps it would be not particularly helpful for me in my journey, because, uh, you know, it's taking that eight days or whatever, mm -hmm. and I've got a different way of praying anyway. I've often directed people like you in eight-day retreats, <laughs> right. and what I would encourage them to do is read the scripture passage outside of the prayer time, so that it's there as a backdrop for you. But then go into the prayer as you would normally go into a prayer time and do whatever you normally do. So be in the quiet, in the stillness. Mm -hmm. And so you still force yourself to try and imagine some way. Exactly, yes. Yeah. That's no, not helpful at all to anybody. Right. And that's certainly not what Ignatius would want. But you're very true there. Um, a lot of people just think of Ignatian prayer as using your imagination. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it isn't. Right. It's a lot broader than that. Mm. Sometimes bad press, sort of, at that age. Yes. That's not that there are texts that talk about the crime and science, but it's not so available. Mm. Yes. Is more their way. That's right, yeah. So that's really and it may well be that the Ignatian method is not the way for you. You know, it's not for everybody. Um, it's, you know, 
a few years ago, um, you know, it seemed to be the panacea for everything to go make um, an IGR or an eight-day or a 30-day retreat. And that's not true. You know, it's really following our own hearts. Where's God calling me now? And it may not be to make a 30 days retreat or an Ignatian retreat. It may be to go off on your own um, into a hermitage and just enjoy the quiet and the space, maybe with the scriptures or whatever you use as your basis for prayer. But the two blend very well together as well. Sorry, someone at the back had their hand up and I think I missed you, I'm sorry. I was going to ask the same question. Oh, right. right. It's a prayer, so it's been answered. Okay, thank you. And, and, and what you did also this evening is, is emphasised contemplative, the understood contemplative dimension. Yes. It's really something is often hidden. Yes, it is. Mm. But, you know, I think it's, it's understandable. If, if you spent 30 days praying for five hours a day or could be six months praying in, for an hour a day, it's bound to have an influence on you. Even an eight-day does, <coughs> praying four times a day. You know, we are changed. And I think something of what I was meaning by the right attitude of going into a retreat is going with that stance of openness and willingness to allow God to work mm. not kind of going in narrow I want this to happen but really being open so you know it's a bit like Henri Nouwen's book isn't it, going in with open hands although you did say you have to go with a desire at each stage Yes, yeah. but the basic but the desire is God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want this, but only if you want it. Yes. <laughs> Anyone else? Are the weeks of guided prayer based on the exercises? Many of them are, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in them, you would probably not get very much further than the foundation. Would, would be my experience in working on them. I often... I that uh, sorry, at the beginning of the, the retreat, the, the path, the, <coughs> where the starting point yeah. is, that might be as far as you would get. Um, in a week of guided prayer, you'll possibly pray for half an hour a day for six days, and it would... I think for many people, it's helping them to become aware of the love of God for them. And so that's where you would mainly gravitate towards. I often find too, it's inviting people to discover different ways of praying. Because often in a week of guided prayer, they will come saying, well, the way I pray doesn't help me anymore. Or, you know, their way of praying is often saying prayers and they're getting dissatisfied with that. And that's a beautiful place to begin. So it's really opening up the goodies that are available to them and letting them sample. Okay, I'd like to move on now to look at the aspect of discernment that Ignatius talks about 
and then um, kind of round off the evening looking at something of his mystical experiences. <clears throat> um, sounds quite a tall order, but we'll try and do it. <laughs> In the, um, the pattern of the retreat, Ignatius is really um, leading the person to that place of freedom. That's what his experience was. And that's really our experience as we work through the retreat, um, coming to a greater freedom to stand before our God and respond to the call of our God. But I guess for all of us, there are times when we ask the question, what does God want me to do? <clears throat> as Ignatius himself asked God the question. And in a sense, he gives us some ideas of how we can actually find out, not with 100% certainty, but begin to discern what is God's will for us. Now, I can't go into the whole aspect of discernment because um, you know, people have written tomes on it. I, I've only got a little one out there, um, but there are great tomes on it written by eminent um, American Jesuits. Um, but I'll just kind of briefly go into it for you. For Ignatius, discernment is a very important part of the 30 days retreat. When we're looking at the life of Jesus, that's in the second stage, um, he also has us kind of do a parallel thing. So we continue with the prayer, so deepening our knowledge and love of Jesus. But alongside that, he's inviting us to look at the God who calls us. And look at how free we are within ourselves, responding to that call. As someone said, you know, am I really open to what God wants or do I want God to want what I want? Um, and trying to change God's will into my will. And so um, <coughs> live that out. And in doing that, there are different ways that we can actually come to the whole process of discernment. Because what we're really doing is taking time to look at where God is, how God is in our lives, and how has that been in our history. And that's where our memory comes in. Our memory is very important. It's looking at how, how have I arrived at decisions in the past? You know, do I just flick a coin? And I mean here important decisions. I don't mean whether we eat Weetabix or... Um, shredded wheat or whatever for breakfast but the important ones that affect our lives when we're really discerning trying to hear where God is calling us because discerning is about listening it's listening to the voice of God within listening to the voice of God in our experience so how in my past life have I made decisions how have I made choices and how is does the choice I have today kind of fit in with that flow is it part of that flow and <clears throat> where then will it lead me and in order to help us to do that Ignatius says that really we need to listen to what's going on in our hearts as well as listening to God and our experience and this is where the movements of consolation and desolation come in 
And notice I used the word earlier, spiritual consolation and desolation. <clears throat> They're different from ordinary consolation and ordinary desolation. I can be feeling very desolate because it's a very grey day and I'm feeling very heavy and um, things haven't gone right at work and maybe I've had a row with my best friend. But deep within me, because I had a, a very peaceful, rich experience in prayer, I can be in spiritual consolation. Because what he says is spiritual consolation is an increase of faith, hope, love. That's how I know it's spiritual consolation. If I've been out and enjoyed myself and had a really great time and feel on top of the world, that's physical cons consolation. It may not lead to an increase of faith, hope and love. So there is a difference. It can lead to that. But it may not. And so what Ignatius is talking about and what I'm talking about are spiritual consolation, spiritual desolation. What happens in our hearts, in our guts, if you like, not what's happening at our surface level. So we can be, we can be experiencing one and having the other. And he says that when we're coming to try to discern God's will for us, there are many different ways that we can do this. And... I have put a list of them on, sorry, I didn't number the pages stupidly, or the pages I've got. Um, I think it may be page five, four. First of all, he says, I can know that it's God's will. When I have an instant revelation, the, the heavy type kind of four lines from the bottom of the page. So I could be like, Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus. It can be an instantaneous thing that I've not set it up at all. Um, I'm not praying for. It just happens and I know God is there. Or it can be like Mary having the angel come and saying, will you be the mother of God? And she's saying, well, I don't know how, but and then eventually, yes. Um, it's an instant thing. And there's a feeling of it being right. Now, not many of us have that kind of a revelation. But the second way we can use to discern God's will is really taking note of these movements within us of consolation and desolation. Where are they leading me to? And Ignatius had a tremendous experience in his life at one point that really was a very mystical experience. During the day, he felt that he um, was having a vision or a sighting of um, a, an animal with lots of eyes, and it was a very peaceful and a good experience. And this happened several times. But then it kind of faded as the day wore on. And at the end of the day, he then realised that it was not leading him to God. It kind of stayed as a good feeling. And he recognised that it was actually not a spiritual consolation. So it wasn't giving him any nudges to follow. He had to put it on one side and say, no, I'm not taking any notice of that. 
While I thought it was from God, it isn't. It's leaving me disturbed, it's leaving me restless. And that's what happens when I experience desolation. I feel disturbed, I feel restless, I feel uncomfortable. And it's not leading me towards God, not leading me to any increase of faith, hope, love. Sometimes I can experience desolation because I've caused it. You know how sometimes, oh, I'm sure you don't experience this, you all being good meditators, um, but some of us lesser human beings, when we sit down to pray and you say, well, I'm going to pray today for three quarters of an hour. And after you've been there 20 minutes and you know, you're really trying to get in touch with the Lord and you're reading the scripture and you're trying to sit quiet and all these thoughts are going on, you know, you've lost the stop button of the tape recorder in your head and you feel, this is useless, I'm not getting you anywhere, I'll give up after half an hour. Well, if you do that often enough, it can begin to lead you away from God can lead you into desolation. Because you're cutting corners. You're not being generous with God, who is totally generous with us. And Ignatius says, you know, when we recognise that we're in those moments of, when it's dry, it's hard, it's difficult, why not stay a bit longer instead of cutting a corner? You know, he's always out to do that bit more. And I mean, he's not talking about spending another hour in prayer. He's only saying, you know, maybe another minute or two. Just to say, I'm in control here. These rest, this restlessness, this maybe coming from an evil spirit that's disturbing me, is not in control, I am. So I'm going to stay that bit longer. I have recognised that I've made a promise to God, I will pray for whatever length of time it is, so I'll stay there. But if I constantly cut corners, constantly give in to the weakness, then I could move into desolation, spiritual desolation, and feel God has gone very distant. God has really moved away from me. We know God hasn't, but it feels like that's what's happened. But when I'm trying to be in touch with the moments of con spiritual consolation, really trying to look at what is God saying here? Where is this leading me? What is the choice that I am to make? So I begin to note them, maybe to follow them, um, see is there a pattern and is there any connection with the pattern of my life? And sometimes what might help us to do that is something that, you know, maybe you've often done um, when you're trying to decide things. Make a list. He talks about making a list of the pros and the cons. So decide, you know, kind of summarise in a sentence what it is I'm wanting to do. And then look at what are all the positive things for doing that. And then look at what are all the things against my doing that. And then sit with them and see, where is God calling my heart in this? And sometimes it's very easy to see. Sometimes we need to sit there for a while and just ask the Lord to show us, to enlighten us, which is the way forward, which is God's way, not my way.
Another way we can discern where God is calling us is maybe to imagine that we're on our deathbed. And what choice at that point would I want to have made now? You know, so would I want to have gone to Honolulu to make grass skirts or would I want to <laughs> stay here and do whatever? And so it's looking at, you know, when, on my deathbed, what would I have wanted to do? What would have felt the right thing to do now? And how often we see, as we look back on our lives, well, I wasn't sure about that decision I made then, but yes, it was right, because A, B and C followed that. Or no, it wasn't right, because D, E and F followed that, and they've not been right. And now I've got a chance to put that right. Maybe I haven't, maybe I've got to stay with it and do the best I can. But maybe if I can, I can put it right. And if we don't feel like doing any of those, or we've not got that instant revelation, then Ignatius says maybe we could imagine that we're trying to advise someone who is in a very same situation as we are. You know, identical situation, um, identical surroundings to it. What advice would we want to give them? I've only ever known that happen once, and it wasn't something I did. It was one of our um, older sisters, I remember her telling me once, um, she couldn't decide whether she would join a teaching order or she'd join with us. And the sister who was helping her in her retreat said to her, just imagine you have a friend called Mary who's trying to make that decision as well. What advice would you give her? Just go off and think about it. And she said, I didn't have to think about it. I knew what I'd tell her to do. <laughs> and so when she went back, the sister said, well, does that resonate with <coughs> you? And, and how often that does, you know, when we put ourselves in this imaginary person's situation. So that's discerning God's will, trying to hear where God is calling us, inviting us. But while we're doing that, or once we've come to that decision, we really need to test it out. So we have to stay with it for a few days. If we're in a 30 days retreat, we can't go off and do whatever we've decided. We have to stay where we are. But that's why Ignatius then takes us into the passion. Am I still prepared to go this far with Jesus, even if this is what that choice might involve? Am I ready to go into pain, suffering for him? And if I am, then it's a sure sign that, yeah, that's the right decision. Maybe something that I can't do right away, I might have to wait. I know someone, one of my directees um, made a 30 days retreat, not with me, with someone else. And she came home very excited. She had been, was at that point a member of a lay community. And her discernment was that she should leave the lay community. And um, she came home very excited that this is what she had discerned and this is what she was going to do. But it actually took two years before she could do it because of lots of other situations that were happening. And she began to get upset and say, that mustn't have been the right decision. I can't do it. And I kept saying to her, just think about how it was when you made that decision. What was going on for you then? What made you feel it was right? And so 
I was inviting her to get in touch with those feelings of consolation again. And as she got in touch with those, then she was able to say, yes, it is right, and I do have to have patience and wait. And, and she did, and eventually it, it all cleared up for her. And she was able to um, leave the community in a very happy frame of mind, and they happy with her going too. Um, so, Ignatius in the exercises gives us a tool for discernment. And the tool he gives us is the examine. Now, a lot of people have maybe heard of this and think, oh, don't like that. Or, oh, yes, I learned that when I was at school or I was preparing for my first communion. And it meant I had to look over all the things I'd done wrong. And I don't like that. And I don't... And that's totally to misunderstand. That was what we used to call the examination of conscience. This, what Ignatius is talking about, is the examination of consciousness. Not so much the actions I do, but my whole attitude and stance in life. Helping us to really become focused on God. There's a lovely book out there called Sleeping with Bread by the Lynn Brothers. And, okay, the thing of Sleeping with Bread is from the children in the concentration camp. At the end of the day, the, the last meal of the day, they always took a lump of bread to bed with them and had it under their pillow so that they knew when they woke up the next morning they'd have something to eat. They were looking forward to the next day. And in a sense, that's what the examine invites us to do. We first of all look back over today and they, in there, they give you some beautiful examples of how they've used it as a family. And it's really kind of just looking at, where have I met God today? Or God, what have you and I done together today? Or something like that. As there is also um, an example on one of the sheets that I gave you of a method you can use. But it's really looking back how positive has the day been? And that's not what we did in the old examination, is it? It was just all into the negative, how awful I'd been. Um, and then we just said we were sorry. But this is looking at how good we've been. How positive, how we've actually um, done good things in the day and saying thank you. And then when we're in that light, just looking and saying, well, yes, Lord, there are times I've failed as well. And I'm sorry about that. And I'm going into to tomorrow and want you to come with me to avoid those things again. So it's looking at it in a much more psychological point of um, developing that positive attitude and stance to life, not the negative one that we had before. It's a very powerful tool. And Ignatius felt it was so powerful that when his students came to him complaining that, you know, they had a meditation to make each day and they had mass to go to and they had their spiritual reading and they had their examine twice a day and their studies, 
couldn't they give up something? <laughs> and Ignatius said, you can give up whatever, but don't give up your examining. Don't stop being reflective. Isn't there a great philosopher who says, an unreflective life is not worth living? Again, the wisdom of... Again, the wisdom of Ignatius, drawing on other people. If we become reflective in life, it will make a difference. We will change our attitude, not overnight, but slowly, gradually. Being more Christ-focused than self-focused. And isn't that really what we're about? And that's why it's the tool to helping us to become discerning, to have a discerning heart, a heart that is turned towards God and not away from God. <clears throat> a heart that is really trying to hear where God's leading us, what God is saying, how God is maybe nudging us. And remembering too, God doesn't always use holy things. He didn't with Paul, did he? You know, he knocked him off his horse, blinded him. It was different with Mary. I suppose in a way it was different with Matthew. He just said, come on, follow me. And he got up and he did. We're not like them because we can't see Jesus. But we know in our hearts when we're having that encounter with Jesus or with God, whoever it is for you. <clears throat> and it's being able to respond to that, to know in our hearts and being able to respond. So it's important that we, we are reflective people. And, you know, if you take nothing else away from this evening, if you take that, that will be wonderful because it will help be helping us all to, to be that much more reflective in our lives so that we act rather than react to life. And surely that's what we're about, isn't it? Wanting to act to um, the various situations we find ourselves in. So, looking at Ignatius the mystic. When we think about the wonderful transformation that happened in his life, he certainly had experience of God right from the very beginning that turned him into a soldier ready to fight into the great man of prayer. Someone who could really write those texts of the exercises, who had that intimate knowledge of God. But it wasn't something that he wrote a lot about. I guess because it was something maybe he couldn't put into words. He actually wasn't a very great writer. He didn't even sit down and write the spiritual exercises. They only got him to have it put onto paper because somebody followed him around with a pen and paper and wrote it. Um, he would not sit down and write things. I think he wrote the Constitutions for the Society of Jesus, but that's about all. So he didn't write these experiences but there are several that he had during his life. Perhaps first of all in 
Manresa, um, where he was. Um, he felt there he was taught by the Divine Majesty. He spent lots of time, long time periods, possibly as long as seven hours in a day at one point, in prayer. And he must have somehow met God in that time. And he certainly did. <clears throat> we know because of the influence it had later on in his life. Um, he became more mellow in not wanting to just go out and do the first thing he thought about, but rather just allowing the spirit to kind of really take, take hold of him, I suppose, and um, nudge him in the direction that he was going. A phrase that he often spoke about was, God alone was the important person for him. God alone was the one that he was trying to, to serve and to follow and respond to. And so, you know, for the, like when he was taken by the Inquisition, when he was turfed out of the Holy Land, when he was nearly thrown into prison for accosting the beggar and so on, they didn't really disturb him because he was still searching. There were all ways that were helping him to search for the truth, for God's way in his life, where God was leading him. And maybe we could say that three periods in his life really are what express the mystical experiences for him. There was the very beginning, which could really have been a quiet period, perhaps where God was really, as it were, preparing the soul, like a gardener prepares the soil for the seeds, so God was preparing Ignatius. He had these insights into reading about people like Francis and Dominic and the desire to go and do something for God. But it, he didn't have any clarity as to what that might be. Then there's the time just after that when almost like it was a dark night for him. He didn't know, he had to try many different things to find what was God really saying to him? Where was God calling him? And in that too, he was so caught up with the suffering in the world that he almost tried to commit suicide. You know, he felt there was just too much for him. Um, and he tried to make up for the evil in the world by, as I mentioned earlier, his periods of fasting, great penances that he did. And then recognising that the only person he could help really was himself, and he had to leave the other people for God to look after. As long as he was faithful to what he was doing, then God would work through him. And then there was the period of the great change when he had the visions of the Trinity. And um, I think it's, yes, um, Hugo Rana in his spirituality. Sorry, I didn't put where I took those quotations from. Um, there's a couple of quotations I use on the next to last page, and they're actually from Hugo Rana where um, Ignatius talks about his awareness of God as being so strong that it, was, that it never was erased from his memory for the rest of his life. 
and from that time forward, he felt a great devotion to the divine majesty when he prayed to the Trinity. And from then on, the Trinity was um, a very distinguishing mark in his spirituality. He speaks quite often in the text of the exercises about the divine majesty. It's a very important phrase for him. Not, you know, God is not just kind of ordinary every day, as it were. He sees God like the vision of Isaiah, in majesty, surrounded by the whole heavenly court. Because, and I guess that's something of the resonance of his earlier life, maybe of being in court and um, recognising the, the great pomp and ceremony and awe that was around in that for him. So he translates that into the position of the Trinity, and well, of God and of the Trinity for him. So God is something awesome, but not unapproachable for him. And again, the, um, as I said earlier, the Trinity is implicit in the spiritual exercises. And then towards the end of his life, he had a tremendous vision of the Trinity in a little tiny chapel just outside or north of Rome in a little village called La Storta. Um, he was journeying into Rome when he realised that's where he had to go. And so they were going to make the foundation for the Jesuits in Rome. And they stopped in this little village and he prayed in this little chapel. And the prayer that came to him, the vision was of the Father, the Son, obviously the Trinity and the Spirit. And his prayer to the Father was, place me with your Son. And he had this tremendous experience that that was what the father was doing. I have to say that prior to that, on his way to this little chapel, he really had an intuition that something was going to happen. Didn't know what, but then when they got there, um, he had this tremendous vision of being placed with Jesus um, in his journey of life. Um, whatever that would mean for him. He didn't suffer in anything like the way Jesus did. Um, I guess his sufferings are more interior sufferings, but he was glad to be able to do that, to have this being, being with Jesus, which was so powerful for him, and which was the thing that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Um, one of the, uh, that little chapel is still there and one of the Jesuits, um, I think he was an Italian, has actually painted a, a mural on the wall of what he thinks the image was that Ignatius saw, which is the father and the son and the spirit's kind of a light in the distance and Ignatius being placed beside Jesus and it's, it's actually a very powerful thing and it's a very powerful um, chapel well it's not it's about a quarter of the size of this room it's a very tiny chapel so um, just in the middle of the road it's like a traffic island in the middle of the road <laughs> I guess it wasn't in his day but that's how it is now and I guess there's something of 
Um, th these visions of Ignatius that happened from time to time in his life. Um, th there is one that happened very much earlier too when he was um, on his sickbed and um, the vision told him, um, it was on the feast of St. Peter, that if he was still alive by midnight, then he would recover, um, which he did. And um, it was just the voice that he heard and a light in his room. <laughs> and often for him, this meeting, um, this awareness of God was just light um, that left him um, kind of, as it were, caught up into God, um, unable to communicate and be with his brethren, rather than um, him writing great treaties about it or even trying to describe it. He just says it was light and his companions recognised that he was different afterwards. They knew he, something had happened to him. Um, because of his closeness with God. And I guess as we see that, as we kind of work through um, his life, we see his whole desire of doing more for God really lived out in the things that he did, um, the way he went on despite his difficulties, his injuries, not um, thinking twice as it were, to go back to school and learn uh, with young boys and then um, moving on uh, after the studies into Rome to be where God wanted him to be, where God was actually calling him to be. He certainly left us a great legacy. He certainly is, I feel, very much a man for our times. Because when you look at his spirituality, you look at the things he encourages, certainly something that can resonate with us today is very relevant for us today. And this whole sense of giving us freedom, or giving the individual freedom, so that's something that we all desire, that freedom to stand before our God as and who we are, not with wearing masks or being pushed there by anybody else or because somebody said something, but just to be in that place, which is what Ignatius invites us to do. If only we can do that, what a different world our world would be today. We can maybe you know, thank him for using some of his military techniques um, to help us and he makes no apologies for doing that and I guess one of the things that he really reminds us is the prayer is about a spiritual exercise that's what he called his book and in the first paragraph he goes on to talk about what he means exercise is something we have to do regularly you know, all these diets that we see, you can't just do them today and have three days off and then come back to them. And We have to be disciplined and do it regularly. Or if we're doing exercises, we need to do them regularly. So we need discipline. And Ignatius says, 
That's what we need in our spiritual life too. It's not just take it as you wish. It's having discipline in order of being spiritual to deepen our relationship with God or with Jesus or with the Spirit. So it's leading us into that more intimate relationship with God that he had. The way that he invites us to go. And surely that's something that we can all learn from and take to heart um, as we go about our daily lives.